I'd ask if you would open your copy of the scriptures and find your way to John chapter 12. Last week we started this chapter. This week, God willing, we will finish it. And I'm hopeful that. Oh boy. Shall I use a handheld? Is that better? There we go. All right. It's always nice to have something unexpected happen, isn't it? It just puts everybody at ease. So John chapter 12, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 27 through 50, and I hope that as we work through this passage, you will see how this fits within the the broader narrative of John's gospel, as well as how important it is for you and I to not just hear words we've heard before, but to really think deeply on them. And so uh, John chapter 12 Jesus says in verse 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice from heaven, voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it. I think what I'm Is better. There, ooh, there we go. All right. No rings. So we see in this passage, Jesus has been approached by the Greeks. We saw that last week in verses 20 through 23. The Greeks are interested in Jesus, which is a sign to him from the Father that his time had come. And before he spells out what he means by his hour had come, he makes a call for true disciples in verses 24 through 26. And then after he states the high cost of discipleship, Jesus returns to the nature and the purpose of his hour as we look here in verses 27 through 36. So he's going to give what I think are five reasons why he came, five reasons for Jesus' hour. We'll see that in verses 27 through 36. And then we're going to see some pastoral tones from the Apostle John as he makes Uh, He anticipates a question, why did so many not believe in Jesus, given the fact they saw so many signs? And then he is going to make a pastoral appeal to them to not be like those people who rejected Christ, but in fact, to embrace him. So, two movements, the explanation of Jesus' hour, and then some pastoral words from John for us. So let's see what Jesus says about his hour. In verse 27, we've already read it. Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw 
all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so the crowd answered him, We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, It is God. Thank you, brother. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. So let's look at these five explanations that Jesus gives for his hour. Verse 27, his hour is language that actually means his death on a cross. He came to die. And we see him, in a sense, troubled by the physical and spiritual death that he would soon experience. But his statement should not cause any alarm. Jesus, remember, he has just called his disciples to follow him, to lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel. And so if Jesus approached the cross as though it was no big deal, tell me how many people would be able to follow him with that kind of singular mind? It it would pretty much scare the rest of us off from following Jesus. He's set a bar so high, none of us can attain to it. I liken what Jesus says here to what we read in Mark's gospel in chapter 14 and verse 36, where Jesus said, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And so, in effect, what Jesus is saying here is, I can't ask the Father to spare me of this, because this is the very purpose for which I came. Don Carson rightly puts it, here's a moment where the horror of death and the ardor of obedience are meeting together. Jesus knows what he must do. His hour is his death on the cross. And where does this resolve come from? How can he commit himself to such horrible things? Well, the answer comes to us in the second purpose of his hour as we look at verse 28. And these overlap in verses uh, 44, 49, and 50. Jesus' hour is solely to bring glory to the Father. You see, his obedience is motivated by one thing. He desires to bring glory to his Father, to make the Father known. That's what he says there at the beginning of verse 28. This, This is the foundation of his relationship. This relationship mattered to Jesus more than anything else. And thus the Father's glory is the wellspring of his obedience and resolve. Teenagers who were in Thrive a couple weeks ago when I was there, do you remember as we were going through the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Our Father who is, our, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Do you remember what we described in that hallowing, what that term means? And then Jesus continued on and he prayed that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. In a very real way, you are seeing right here in this moment that Jesus is honoring God's name on earth just as it is in heaven. Where those angels surround him day after day, hour after hour, minute after minute, 
crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Not only does Jesus submit His will to the Father, but you notice He actually wants to do this. He actually wants to see that God is glorified. He does what He says is the summation of the whole Old Testament law. He loves the Lord His God with all His heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, and with all his strength. And because of it, as we just sang that last song, he has received a name that is above every name. Turn with me just real quickly to Philippians chapter 2. You know this passage very well. We just memorized it as a congregation or challenged us to memorize it. As you look at Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9, Therefore, because of Jesus' obedience, his passion singular passion to see the Father glorified. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father." It's all about that. And Jesus understood that. In fact, Paul understood it. Both Jesus and Paul tell us that Jesus was here to do something we could not do for ourselves. He was to live this sinless life in order to be a perfect sacrifice. And both Jesus and Paul call us to follow him. And do what we have been saved to do. Every fourth and fifth grader out there, I want you to listen up for a second. Hear me. There is a real difference between doing what you are asked to do and doing it because you want to bring joy to the one who's asked, the one who's called for your obedience. Jesus shows us the difference between having to do something and wanting to do something. The father, what does he do in response to the son's words? His confession that he is completely dedicated to the father's mission and purpose. He says, Father, glorify your name in verse 28. And then a voice from heaven said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The father is confirming that indeed Jesus' hour has come and that it is necessary And further, that the Father's name has been glorified and will continue to be glorified. Now, what's interesting is verses 29 tells us the crowd heard it and there was a debate on what it was. Was it just passing thunder? Or no, 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 an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus is quick to point out that this voice was for their sake and not his own. So that begs the question. If Jesus knew that it was from God... How could this indistinguishable sound actually prove helpful given the fact that some thought it was thunder and some thought it was an angel? Well, let's just think about things for a moment. Who is a part of this big crowd that's around Jesus? His disciples are numbered in their midst. And as we've seen numerous times in John's gospel already, what was lost on them in the very moment 
is often going to be recalled by the Holy Spirit at a later day to give them some real sense of encouragement, of being settled and grounded into a deeper truth. And I think John the Apostle brings that out. He remembered what Jesus had told them about this voice, which is why he includes the fact that it was the Father who spoke. It is the Father's declaration of victory and glorification rather than defeat. So here's an Easter egg, as it were, for John's or Jesus' disciples. Something for them to not maybe understand in the moment, but at a timely manner when they are discouraged because the one they've devoted three and a half years of their life to is dead. Then they will remember that God said, I have glorified myself through you. I will do so again. And in fact, the cross isn't the end. But there's also the crowd. They needed to hear this heavenly voice because it proves the cross did not stamp Jesus as irredeemable. You see, in that society and day, the cross was the capital crime or punishment for Rome, reserved not for Roman citizens. If you were a citizen of Rome, you were either beheaded or you were hung, but you were not crucified. This was reserved for the worst of the worst. And to be crucified is like, your mama didn't love you kind of thing. You are hopeless. And so this crowd, this crowd needed to understand that the very heights of of the offense of the cross was actually the pinnacle of Jesus' glorification. And what about for us here today? We hear this. We read this. We need to hear the Father's voice, especially in light of what follows as we see our third purpose for Jesus' hour. We see that Jesus must go to the cross. We see that this cross is going to bring the Father glory. And we see that Jesus' hour, here in verse 31, is bringing judgment upon the world and the ruler of the world. It means this. If Jesus is judging the world, it means that all who reject him because of the offense of the cross, all who reject Jesus because of his outlandish claims to be divine, all who reject Jesus because he's not the Messiah that they want, or think they need, are judged by the cross. Because there in the cross, God nailed our shame to his son. And to reject God's means of salvation is to reject God himself. And that can only bring on judgment. But there's also the rule of this world that is judged. And John will use that term a couple more times in his gospel. In chapter 14 and chapter 16, he uses it as a term for Satan. Satan's time had come. And in the cross and resurrection, he would meet his ultimate defeat. We see that in Revelation chapter 12 when he is judged. And from this point on, he is a defeated foe. Hear these words that Paul writes from Colossians chapter 2. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, 
having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did he do this? How can a holy God look upon sinners and not betray his holiness by just saying, ah, it's not that big of a deal? Here's how he did it. He's canceled the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. And this he has set aside, as I said a moment ago, he has nailed it to the cross. And in that, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. This is why the cross is so offensive. There is no superhero that dies on a cross. Marvel's comic books, they haven't invented one yet. They, they go off, they lay down their lives for others, they die on a noble act on a battlefield. They don't die inglorious. They don't die in shame. And this is such a great reversal. God takes the most offensive form of death in that age and he redeems it. And in fact, through Jesus' death, it's not he who gets the shame, but it's his enemy who gets the shame. Jesus goes on to say, here's his fourth purpose, and we see it in verses 32 through 34. The purpose of his hour would draw people to believe in him. In striking contrast to Satan being cast down, what does Jesus say? He will be lifted up. Now, this is a euphemism. It's a double reference to both the crucifixion, the cross, but also to his exaltation. And to the first century reader, the cross, as I've said, is a symbol of defeat, and Jesus is going to make it his crowning symbol of victory. You'll see in your bulletin handout, there's a life group question here. What does Jesus mean when he says he will be lifted up? Well, John, our faithful guide, explains to us what we need to understand about Jesus' vague statement in verse 32. And he does so in verses 33 and 34. Jesus was sent into the world to destroy sin and death, not produce a new philosophy, a new religion. Think of it for a moment. If Christianity is all about being your best self, doing good for others, altruism, if it's all about self-sacrifice and discipleship, losing your life for the sake of Christianity, if it's about just adopting a new set of ethics or morals, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or associate with those that do. If Christianity is all about this, why would a life need to be sacrificed? Why would someone die on a cross for that? If there is no resurrection, one could make an argument that Jesus was misunderstood. And that led to his unfortunate death. And then Christianity could just be sidebarred, pushed away as just another philosophical framework, just another material or moral worldview. But friends, the cross isn't the end of Jesus. His resurrection sets the Christian faith apart from all other world religions. You see, Christianity is not first and foremost about a new way to live. It's about new life. 
The storyline of the Bible tells us that there's this holy creator who made all things, and he set mankind as his crowning jewel to be his representatives on creation, to rule and govern according to his character and his goodness. But man rebelled against their creator, and they chose to reject his law and his word. And then through that, their rebellion has brought sin upon all creation. And yet, God planned and provided a means to address this sin problem. He does it through atonement. This offensive term to the modern ear that one would have to die for the sins of another. Rather than just serving your time out in purgatory, as we talked about in our discovery class this morning. Rather than just paying a penance or doing good deeds to somehow counterbalance the bad that you've done, Jesus, the Word of God, says that there must be an atonement, an atonement made. We see it right after the fall when the animal was killed to provide clothing, covering of Adam and Eve's shame. We see it in the Old Testament sacrificial system, which required an animal to be offered that was without blemish. These only served as types, pictures pointing forward to the one who would come, who would put an end to all animal sacrifices. You remember what we learned a while ago in 1 Samuel 15, 22, that God has, uh, does he delight in the blood of bulls and goats and rams? Or is it absolute obedience? The problem is that none of us has perfectly obeyed and none of us can because our hearts have been corrupted by the fall. Therefore, God had to send his son into the world to save us, to take on our flesh in order to succeed where the first Adam failed and his absolute obedience to the Father is what enables him to offer eternal life, real salvation, new birth to anyone who would believe in him. And Jesus says, this lifting me up is not only reversing your normal understanding of the cross, but by lifting me up, I will draw people to myself. The death of Christ becomes a magnet. And you know what magnets do. We've all played with them as kids. A magnet with the same polarity or whatever the science is. You can ask many of the School of Minds guys. They'll probably tell you. Uh, If they're like, they repulse one another. If they're not the same, then they attract one another. And this is the nature of the gospel. The gospel is offensive that a blood sacrifice has to be offered is offensive to people. That the superhero of Christianity would die on the cross is offensive to people. Hey, that there is a God who is authoritative and going to judge us is offensive to people. And yet, for others, this is hope. And they have tried everything else. And they long to be freed of their sins. They long to be redeemed. And so the gospel, this Jesus who did what no one else could do, he draws people to him. This kind of self-sacrificial love is attractive. It's incomprehensible. Why would he do that for me? If he knows who I am at the very core of who I am, and he still loved me while I was still a sinner? That's, that's grace. And Jesus says, this is what will draw people to me. 
and we know this to be true, the Spirit uses the faithful proclamation of the gospel to draw people to Jesus. This is one message, one message for all people from every background, from every culture, one singular message to unite the nations in love, in worship, and in obedience to Christ. Now, be sure, verse 34 tells us the crowds understood exactly what Jesus was saying. They understood the crucifixion language that lifted up was a euphemism for being crucified. They knew that. They also had heard Jesus repeatedly tell them that he was the Son of Man. And so they assume that the Son of Man is going to be crucified. What they, were, they had just been celebrating Jesus, though, as the Messiah. And so now they're confused. Because in their understanding, the Messiah would not suffer. How is this possible? They believed he was destined for an eternal throne, not a cross. Does that mean that the Christ and the Son of Man are two different figures? Well, Jesus doesn't even answer their question. Did you notice that? He just moves on by it. I think the assumption is, I've been down this road many times before. And for John's readers of his gospel, they're going to get it. At this point, having read it and studied it, they're like, he's already answered this in spades. He's said this over and over again. And Jesus moves on. And what does he do? He describes himself as light. A light which is soon to leave. A light that illuminates the darkness so that people can see and not fall. A light that is called to be believed in. A light that is only here for a time. And then when it is gone, so is your opportunity. And what's so interesting, after making this prophetic announcement, we see in verse 37 or 36 that Jesus left and hid himself from them. He's contrasted light with darkness throughout his ministry. And this metaphor stuck with John. He uses it repeatedly in his letters of 1 John and in the book of Revelation. Jesus had just warned the people to believe in the light while you have it, for there is, it's only there for a time. And now, like an Old Testament prophet who is acting out his message, Jesus has just pronounced, he leaves. And he hides himself from them. You see, this dramatic reversal that Jesus' death produces, what appeared to the world as absolute failure, the whole movement tied up in one man, and it ends on a cross is actually God's judgment upon the world. What appears to the world as Jesus' destruction actually signals the destruction of the ruler of this world. What appears to be Jesus' defeat actually leads to his glorification, his exaltation, and our hope of eternal life. The cross is an offense. And yet, even in all of its hideousness, it draws people to believe in Jesus. And it produces an urgency to believe today. As we move to the second half of the passage, we see that Pastor John is going to answer an unexpected question. 
and then make an appeal to his readers in verses 37 through 50. What is the anticipated question? Well, let's pick up in verse 37. After Jesus has departed, John continues to give us a pastoral explanation, and he anticipates his readers are going to ask the question, in spite of all the many things Jesus has done, why didn't they believe? John says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken to the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. There's a lot of debate whether that his glory and speaking of him was a theophany where Isaiah was given a chance to see Jesus or is this referring back to the Father's glory? Either way, the Father and the Son are one. Nevertheless, John goes on, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Let's pause here for a moment and reflect on what John has said. You'll also see another life group question of the explanation that John gives his readers for this lack of faith. John quotes Isaiah 53.1. The Jews are rejecting Jesus as their Messiah. And John pointedly connects their rejection of Jesus with their forefathers' rejection of Yahweh. And he quotes there from Isaiah 53.1. Because the ancient Jews had rejected God, we see also a quote from Isaiah 6. That God will further harden their hearts. He will make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Now, he makes a direct quote from Isaiah 53.1 in verse 38. But when John quotes from Isaiah 6.10 in verse 40, he does something with this quote that I think is important to understand. He doesn't, drop, he doesn't quote it exactly. In fact, he drops any mention of the heart and any mention of hearing. Instead, what does John focus on? It's their sight, right? He blinded their eyes lest they see with their eyes. Now, the, he does mention the heart, but it's a hardened heart. He doesn't mention anything about their ears. And I think the John's making a very subtle but significant point. Remember, these people that Jesus is speaking these words to saw him do great miracles. Many of them had seen him raise Lazarus, and the others that were there had heard from those who saw Jesus raise Lazarus, and they wanted to see Jesus. But these aren't the only miracles that Jesus did. He did many others, many signs, yet they did not believe. And John wants us to understand, these people saw 
God in his glory. The incarnate Jesus. They saw real miracles and they didn't believe. What does that tell you and I? Oh man, if I were there when the Red Sea parted, you know, like the cartoon, you see the big whales swimming around in the wall of water and you're looking at them and there's that and there's that fish and maybe there was trout, I don't know. But they, we think oftentimes if we were to have seen these things or as an agnostic or an atheist, until I see these things, until I see, I will not believe. Thomas, one of Jesus' own disciples, used those very words. So it's by no accident that John is heightening the fact that these were actual eyewitnesses and yet they rejected. And that just shows us the, the depravity of the human heart. Every parent's known this. You offer your child something for their good and they reject it. Why do they reject it? Because they're pagans. They're beautiful pagans. They're lovely, but they don't want it simply because you're the one offering it to them. Or because they are mad about something else. And this is the nature of humanity. We can see and yet reject what we see. John, John doesn't want his readers to miss the connections that he's making. He is bridging the gap between three different groups of Jews. Those who were alive in Isaiah's day that were rejecting the words of God through his prophets. And those who literally saw Jesus and his third group of Jews is his audience, Jewish men and women. And by connecting the responses of these various generations of Isaiah 6, Isaiah 53, of Jesus' ministry and day, and then of John's day some 40 years later, he is highlighting the characteristic stubbornness of the Jewish people. The very people who were expelled from the promised land because of their sinful and stubborn rejection of Yahweh. Their offspring are the very people who are rejecting Jesus, the one who took on flesh. And John, writing some probably 40 plus years after Jesus' resurrection, he knew his readers were seeing Jews leave Christianity or leave Judaism and embrace Christianity. He also knew that some of those Jews um, are, are questioning whether or not it's valuable to pursue this faith with such persecution attached. So I think his use of Isaiah is by no accident. In fact, to make a long story short, John is simply saying, don't be like them. Don't reject the words and works of Jesus. In fact, follow him. And in verses 44 to 50, he makes this pastoral appeal to his readers to believe in Jesus. Look with me. Jesus cried out, John said. And and Jesus said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them 
I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. How should we hear these words? In his last public teaching before his death, Jesus is using this moment. And what does he do with that moment? He describes yet again the unity between himself and his father. In verse 44, Jesus says, To believe in me is to believe in the father who sent me. Jesus says in verse 45, again, picking up on the sight, that gateway of vision, he says, to see me is to see the father. And then in verses 49 and 50, Jesus says, to hear me is to hear the father. I'm only telling you what he told me. I'm not making this up. I'm not going rogue. Friends, we need a Savior like this who has this kind of intimacy with God, who is so close to him that to see him is to see the other. To hear him is to hear the other. To believe in him is to believe in the other. We live in darkness. But those who receive the one the Father sent, those who believe in Jesus, he will save from the darkness. He says that three times in verse 46 and 47 and verse 15 or 50. But to reject Jesus, as you look at verses 46 and 48, means to choose to remain in the darkness and to place yourself under future judgment. Hear this. The day of judgment can be kicked down the road, but that day will ultimately come. And yet we see that judgment is going to involve a painful reminder. You see, you may not believe this message that you're hearing today. But according to Jesus' words in verses 48 through 50, the day will come when his very words will come to your mind as you stand before God and they will judge you. And you will remember all the gracious opportunities that you had to believe in him. Your parents bringing you to church, a friend inviting you to church, your questions and concerns as you look at the scriptures and wrestle with, is he who he says he is? And all those years of living in darkness, when you could have walked in the light. And to me, there is no more horrible sense. There is no greater shame than in that moment to remember all that has been shared and how you chose to reject it. Friend, this is serious stuff. I know it's heavy, and I know that it's not easy, but Jesus makes a promise. And we see it in verse 50. He offers hope to all who believe in the Father's words. He says they will receive 
eternal life. Jesus wants us to know that the Father has commanded people everywhere to believe in Him for eternal life. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God has overlooked. You're not having any knowledge of who the real Jesus is. God has been patient with you, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Did you hear that That last part? The assurance that God is going to judge the world is because he raised Jesus from the dead. You remember that cross that was to put an end to Jesus and his ridiculous claims? That cross that was the absolute symbol and embodiment of the most repulsive people in society, deserving of a horrible death. That cross that was to bring great shame on any follower of Jesus. That cross led to a resurrection. And that resurrection upends and reverses everything so that not only is the resurrection the hope for which all Christians trust in, But that resurrection is also itself a sign that a day of judgment will be coming. And what you do with Jesus now will matter on that day. Last Friday, I bumped into Josh Brown. And uh, we were talking. He, if you don't know Josh, he is the pastor of Redeeming Grace Baptist Church or Redeeming Grace Church, a church we uh, sent out from South Canyon uh, four years ago almost, and he's pastoring here in town. He had just met with a a man who had been visiting their church for some period of time. This guy came in, a strong um, atheist. He kept pressing Josh with questions, trying to poke holes in the Bible and Christianity, and Josh's response was an honest one. He said, I'm not going to be able to answer all your questions, but we're about to start a series through the Gospel of Mark. Why don't you just come to church And hear what Jesus claims. And try to learn about him. Well, he had been coming. And on Friday, this man told Josh that two weeks earlier during the service, when there was a prayer of confession, that he had given his life to Jesus. And he's like, now what do I do? My heart has changed I'm so interested in this stuff. You see, Jesus said, when he is lifted up, he will draw people to himself. This this man who stood outside the tomb of a dead man and loudly cried out, Lazarus, come out, is once again boldly and authoritatively crying out, as we see in verse 44, believe in me. Now, this is a church that loves Christ and his gospel. And our passion for Jesus does not allow us to manipulate people into a false profession. We simply share the message to you as it appears in the text. If Jesus is standing in the midst of the crowd and he is crawling out for them to believe in him, then that is what we ought to do today. I'm thinking of the fact that 
people heard Jesus or the Father speaking to Jesus, and some thought it was thunder, and some thought maybe an angel had said something to him. In any event, none of them, except for Jesus, knew that it was God. And so I wonder if there is a noise reverberating in your heart and mind today. Will you attribute it to simply the noise of a preacher? Or will you give God glory and confess Jesus as your Savior? Lord, we, we give this moment to you. And we simply ask that your work would be done. That for those of us who are in Christ, we would see that his, his ministry and his work, his purpose in going to the cross served so many things. It was not a failure. It was not a, a catching you in your sovereign plan of salvation off by surprise, but it was by your design. You received great glory through it. And I pray that you would help us who are in Christ to grow as followers of Jesus. May our joy in the gospel, may it motivate us to love and to good works. But we're also mindful that there are many in this room that are not believers, whether they are young or old, here with their parents or at the invitation of a member or a guest. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help them to see and hear, to hear your voice, to humble themselves, to not be afraid of the repercussions or what others will think, but to wholeheartedly confess Jesus is the Christ. Just as we saw in the picture of baptism at the beginning of our service this morning, a, a public affirmation of faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and of a life that is being devoted to live that gospel truth out. Lord, work in us for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to ask you to take a moment and just pause and pray. As God has been speaking to you this morning before we're led in our closing song, of beholding this wondrous mystery of Christ and his work. Let's just take a moment and reflect, pray. I'll be waiting outside in the foyer if you have questions. I'll be happy to answer those afterward. You can always reach out to us during the week. Uh, but let's just give this moment to God before we conclude.